to tell you about a lady named Karen Sturgis. Uh, Karen was an elderly woman, and she had two daughters. Uh, she also had five grandchildren, and those grandchildren were growing up and becoming young adults. Now, Karen loved to knit. Knitting was her passion. It was her hobby. It was something that she had done all her life. And so back in 2021, Karen decided that she was going to knit five baby sweaters. And what she was going to do is she was going to give each one of her grandchildren one of these baby sweaters with hopes that they could then use it when they produce some great-grandchildren for her. Well, unfortunately, when Karen was in the middle of this knitting project, she contracted an aggressive terminal illness that progresses very quickly. And when Karen received her diagnosis, she knew that her time on earth was going to be very short. And she tried and tried and tried the best she could to finish these five sweaters for her grandchildren. Uh, but unfortunately, she wasn't able to complete the project. Uh, when Karen passed away, she had three of the sweaters done, but two of the sweaters were started but unfinished. Now, when Karen passed away, her two daughters didn't know what to do with these sweaters. Uh, they thought it would be unfair to give three of the grandchildren a sweater, but not the other two. I mean, after all, how would they decide who would get them and who wouldn't without upsetting someone? And neither of the daughters knew how to knit, so they couldn't finish the two sweaters that were in progress. And so what they did is they just took these sweaters and put them in a box and stored them away. Well, about a year later, one of the daughters found out about an organization called Loose Ends. Loose Ends is an organization that consists of volunteer knitters from all over the country. And when somebody uh, passes away and departs this earth in the middle of a knitting project, one of these volunteers from Loose Ends can take that project and they can pick up where that person left off. One of those volunteers is a lady named Sarah Doze, and she happened to be the one who picked up Karen's sweaters, and she finished those two that were in progress. And so thanks to Sarah, Karen's family had all five sweaters for the grandchildren. Now, I tell that story because volunteers like Sarah, they remind me of our role as followers of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago, he established God's kingdom here on this earth. And he began the work of expanding God's kingdom by inviting people to follow him. But after his death and resurrection, when Jesus departed this earth and ascended back into heaven, there was still work that needed to be done. And when Jesus ascended back into heaven, the work of paying for our sin and securing our salvation, that work was done. But the work of expanding God's kingdom to the ends of the earth, that work wasn't done. And so right before Jesus ascended back into heaven, he told his followers to pick up where he was leaving off. He told his followers to continue the work that he started, the work of expanding God's kingdom here on this earth. And so church, that means we have a job to do. Our job is to continue the work that Jesus started. Our job is to continue the work of expanding God's kingdom to the end of this earth. That's why we're here. That's why God hasn't taken us to heaven yet. And that's why God saw fit to establish City View Church right here in Avon nearly 10 years ago. We are here as individuals and we are here as a church to expand God's kingdom by making disciples of Jesus Christ. We're here to help people come to know Jesus Christ. We're here to help people grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And we're here to help people go out and tell others how to follow Jesus Christ. As I said when I was back here in July, that's my vision for City View Church. My vision for City View Church is that this is going to be a place where people come to know Christ, a place where people grow in a relationship with Christ, and a place where people will go out and share Christ with a lost and dying world. That's my vision for City View Church. And it's my vision for City View Church because from what I see in the Bible, that's the work that Jesus has given us to do. Now, how do we go about doing this work that Jesus has given us to do? What does it look like to expand God's kingdom here on this earth? What should we expect as we go out and engage in this work? Will God be with us as we try to expand his kingdom? You might have a lot of questions about this work that Jesus has given us to do. Knowing how to expand God's kingdom, that's not something that we're born knowing how to do. It's not something that comes naturally to us. That's the bad news. But the good news is the book of Acts that's in our Bible has some answers. It has some insights for us. It has some instructions for us. The book of Acts that's in our Bible, it has a lot to say that can help us do this work that Jesus has given us to do. So I'm going to start my preaching ministry here at City View Church by preaching through the book of Acts from the beginning to the end. The book of Acts, it tells the stories of how the, the first followers of Jesus went about expanding God's kingdom here on this earth. And we can learn a lot about what they said and what they, said and what they did as God worked through them. Now, the book of Acts is a big book, 28 chapters. So preaching through the book of Acts is going to take some time. But I think this endeavor is going to be worth the effort. And I think it's going to be worth the effort because there is so much rich, practical truth in this book. Now today I want to begin this sermon series on the book of Acts by looking at the first 11 verses that are in chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to take it out and open it up to Acts chapter 1. Whether you have an old-fashioned hard copy of the Bible or whether you have one of those new electronic copies on your phone, I invite you to open it up to Acts chapter 1 so you can follow along as I read. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you'll see the Bible is divided into what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament has 39 books that were all written before Jesus was born. The New Testament has 27 books that were all written after Jesus was born. And the first four books in the New Testament, we call those Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the four Gospels. And they tell the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And then right after those four Gospels, you'll find the book of Acts. And it's going to pick up the story with what happened right after Jesus' resurrection. So let me read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 for you, and then I'll share with you some things that we can learn from it. If you're able, would you please stand as I read God's holy and inspired word for us this morning? This is Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, 
Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Father, we thank you for your holy and inspired word this morning. And Lord God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to learn from you so that we can live for you and so that we can serve you and hear you say to us on that day, well done, my good and faithful servant. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to draw your attention to verse 8 for just a moment. Verse 8 is not only one of the most important verses in this passage that I just read. It's also one of the most important verses in the entire book of Acts. I'll say more about verse 8 later, but for now I want you to notice in this verse that right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples that they will be his witnesses all around the world. And the grammatical structure of that statement makes it more than just a statement. It's also a command. Right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he commands his followers to be his witnesses. Now that begs the question, what exactly is a witness? What exactly is a witness for Jesus? Well, the word witness that's used there, it refers to somebody who gives a testimony. So a witness for Jesus is going to be somebody who, who tells others about Jesus. And they're going to tell others about Jesus so that these people might become followers of him too. And so that the kingdom of God might expand. Now the thought of telling others about Jesus so that they might follow him. This strikes fear into the hearts of many Christians. In Pittsburgh, we would say it scares the living daylights out of them. Many Christians fear that they don't have what it takes to be an effective witness for Jesus. And so they don't live out Jesus' command and, and they keep their faith to themselves. And then what happens is they end up feeling guilty that they're keeping their faith to themselves and they get frustrated and discouraged because they know they're not doing what Jesus has commanded them to do. I've been there. And if that's where you are today, I want to encourage you. First, I want to encourage you by telling you that you're not alone. But more importantly, I want to encourage you by telling you that you can be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. You can be an effective witness for Jesus Christ because God has given you all the resources that you need to be an effective witness for Jesus. You just have to rely on those resources. In fact, the only way that anyone can be an effective witness for Jesus is to rely on the resources that God has given to us. And that leads to the main point that I want to make today as we look at this passage in Acts chapter 1. The main point that I want to make today is this. To be effective witnesses for Jesus, we must rely on the resources that God has given to us. To be effective witnesses for Jesus, we must rely on the resources that God has given to us. Now, what are these resources that God has given to us? What are these resources that we have to rely on as we do the work that Jesus has given us to do? Well, I see four of them in this passage, and I want to point them out to you. First, 
To be an effective witness for Jesus, we must rely on God's word. We must rely on God's holy word. Look at how this passage starts off in verse 1. It starts off by saying, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now that first book that's mentioned there, that's the Gospel of Luke. Remember earlier I told you that we have four Gospels in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Well, if you compare the opening verses here in the book of Acts with the opening verses of the Gospel of Luke, you'll see that they're written by the same person. Now, we'll learn more about who Luke is and how he fits into the story later on as we get further into the book of Acts. But for now, I just want you to realize that the book of Acts is written by Luke, and it's the sequel to his Gospel. Now, you can also see in verse 1 that Luke addresses this book to someone named Theophilus. Luke addressed his gospel to the same person. Now that name Theophilus, it means God lover. So some people think that this is a generic term that refers to all who love God. And it's true that Luke wrote his gospel for all those who love God. But Theophilus was most likely a specific person who had paid Luke to do some research and to write these accounts to, to confirm and to verify these things that he was learning about Jesus. Now, Luke tells us here in the first three verses of the book of Acts that in his gospel, he, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach as he established his kingdom here on earth. The gospel of Luke deals with all that Jesus began to do up until that time when he was taken back into heaven. The implication is that the book of Acts is going to tell us what Jesus continued to do through his followers as they went and expanded God's kingdom on earth after Jesus had ascended back into heaven. Now, when you read Luke's works, when you read his gospel, when you read the book of Acts, one of the things that you'll notice is that Luke was a very detailed historian. All throughout his works, you're going to see that he includes names and dates and places. And what's amazing and what's incredible is that as archaeologists uncover more and more artifacts from this time frame, everything that they're uncovering only further confirms the accuracy of what Luke wrote. Luke tells us at the beginning of his gospel that he went to great lengths to ensure the accuracy of everything that he wrote. Luke studied what other people had written about Jesus. Luke interviewed eyewitnesses to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And as we'll learn later on in the book of Acts, for some of the things that occur later in this book, Luke was an eyewitness himself. So when Luke wrote his gospel, when he wrote the book of Acts, he made every effort to write an accurate account for Theophilus and for all of those who love God. Now there's more to the story than this. As Luke wrote his gospel, as he wrote the book of Acts, God was working in Luke to ensure that Luke was writing exactly what God wanted him to write. We call this the inspiration of Scripture. So in one sense, we can say this book is Luke's word to us, but in a greater sense, we can say that this is God's words to us. We call it the Scripture. Scripture is God's holy word. And the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, they're a part of God's holy word, along with all the other books that we have here in our Bibles. Now, today's the first Sunday of the NFL regular season. 
And I think I've already made this clear, but I want to reiterate it just in case you missed it or in case you didn't understand. I am a Steelers fan, and I will be a Steelers fan for life. If you try to convert me to be a Colts fan, you're going to fail. The people in Baltimore tried to convert me to be a Ravens fan for the past 20 years, and they failed. I withstood all the pressure and persecution. My convictions are set. Anyways, I was thinking about football this week with it being the first week of the regular season, and I thought about how all of the uh, football teams have a playbook. And from what I read, some of these playbooks are like seven to 800 pages long. And that's just the player's version of the playbook. The coach's version can be double that. Now, on every team, the players, they study their playbooks. They discuss their playbooks in meetings. They consult their playbooks during practices and games. I even read about one NFL rookie who, who was putting his playbook under his pillow at night because he never wanted to be too far away from his playbook. The team's playbook is at the center of all that an NFL player does. And the reason why is because that playbook has all the information that player needs to be effective for his team. And church, in the same way, God's holy word, the Bible, this tells us what we need to know in order to be effective witnesses for Jesus. You see, to be an effective witness for Jesus, we need to know Jesus personally. Now, the first disciples, the first followers of Jesus, they could be effective witnesses for Jesus because they got to know Jesus personally as they spent countless hours with him while he was physically alive and here on this earth. Those first disciples, they were privileged to spend three years following Jesus around, listening to him teach, seeing him perform miracles. And then in addition to those three years that they spent with him before his death and resurrection, they spent another 40 days with him after his resurrection. These first disciples, they could be effective witnesses for Jesus because they got to know Jesus personally by spending time with him. But now that Jesus has ascended into heaven, the situation has changed. We can't sit down and have dinner with Jesus in the same way that the first disciples did. And we can't get in a boat and go fishing with Jesus in the same way that those first disciples did. But we still can get to know Jesus personally. How can we get to know Jesus personally? How can we know him when he's not physically here on this earth anymore? Well, we can get to know Jesus personally by studying God's holy word, the Bible. God inspired writers like Luke and, and others to record for us the life and the teachings of Jesus. And God inspired them so that we could get to know Jesus personally. And I told you that in our Bibles, there's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. And those 39 books that were written in the Old Testament, they were written before Jesus was born. The 27 in the New, they were written after was Jesus was born. But I want you to know that even those 39 books that are in the Old Testament, they still can teach us about Jesus. They all point to him. The Bible, God's holy word. It's all about Jesus. So if we want to get to know Jesus personally, if we want to be effective witnesses for Jesus, then we've got to study God's holy word. If we want to be effective witnesses for Jesus here at City View Church, 
God's holy word is going to have to be at the center of everything that we do. To be effective witnesses for Jesus, God's holy word has got to be at the center of my preaching. And so that's why I'm committed to preaching through books of the Bible. If we're going to be effective witnesses for Jesus here at City View Church, then God's holy word has got to be at the center of our city groups and what's taught and discussed there. If we're going to be effective witnesses for Jesus here at City View Church, then God's holy word has got to be at the center of our children's and our youth ministries. If we're going to be effective witnesses for Jesus, then God's holy word has got to be at the center of our outreach and mission work. If we're going to be effective witnesses for Jesus Church, we've got to make God's holy word at the center of all that we do. Now, it's not enough for us just to to have God's holy word at the center of all that we do collectively as a church. If we really want to get to know Jesus personally, if we really want to be effective witnesses for Jesus, then God's holy word also has to be at the center of everything that we do as individuals. If you really want to get to know Jesus personally, if you really want to be an effective witness for Jesus, then you've got to read and study God's word on your own. You've got to spend time with God each and every day reading his word and then talking to him about what you've just read. That's how we get to know Jesus personally today. And these disciplines are essential if we want to be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. To be effective witnesses for Jesus, we've got to rely on God's holy word. Now, in addition to that, we've got to rely on God's holy spirit If we want to be effective witnesses for Jesus, we must rely on God's Holy Spirit. In verse 4, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples to wait before they rush out and be his witnesses. Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Father. Now, what's this promise that they're supposed to wait for? Well, verse 5 tells us. Verse 5 tells us that this promise from the Father is the Holy Spirit. Church, we serve a triune God. That means we serve one God who is three persons. There's the Father, the Son, that's Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. We call it the Trinity. One God and three persons. Now, if trying to figure the Trinity out blows your mind... Don't worry, you're in good company. The best of theologians for the last 2,000 years have tried to figure out the Trinity, and they struggle to, to understand it and explain it. But this is what God has told us about himself. He is one God and three persons. Well, anyways, right before Jesus died on the cross, that night before, he told his disciples that the Father would send the Holy Spirit to them after he died and was raised and ascended into heaven. And here in verse 4, Jesus is telling his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit before they go out and do the work of being his witnesses. And Jesus is telling his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit because in order to be effective witnesses for Jesus, they're going to have to have the Holy Spirit. And there's two reasons why that's the case. First, to be an effective witness for Jesus, we've got to rely on the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit provides us with God's presence. The Holy Spirit provides us with God's presence. In verse 5, Jesus tells the disciples that they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That means they're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
When the Father sends the Holy Spirit, he was going to send the Holy Spirit to come and live within them. And the same thing happens for believers today. When we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, God will send his Holy Spirit to come and live within us. And he does that so that we have his presence with us. We have God's presence when the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. Because remember, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And if we're going to be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ, we've got to have God with us. Why do we need to have God with us? Well, we need to have God with us because the only one who can truly expand God's kingdom is God himself. You see, God's kingdom expands when somebody hears about Jesus and then repents of their sin and puts their faith in Jesus. We can share the message, but only God can turn a person's heart to him. We can tell people how to enter the kingdom of God, but only God can do the work of actually bringing them in. So we need God to be with us when we do the work that Jesus has given us to do. We can't be effective witnesses without God. And so one reason Jesus told his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit before they go out and be his witnesses is that the Holy Spirit provides us with God's presence. Now the second reason that Jesus told his disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit provides us with God's power. The Holy Spirit provides us with God's presence, and he also provides us with God's power. In verse 6, you'll see that the disciples come to Jesus, and, and they ask him a question. They ask him if this is the time that he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Jesus had been talking about the kingdom of God with his disciples for the past 40 days. That's what we're told in verse 3. And so this question that the disciples ask, it, it doesn't really come out of nowhere, right? This has been the conversation that they've been having with Jesus for the past 40 days. What the disciples were essentially asking with that question is they were essentially asking Jesus if he was going to overthrow the Romans right now. The Romans had recently taken control of Israel and the Jewish people were often oppressed by the Roman government and Roman officials. And these, these first disciples of Jesus, they knew the Old Testament prophecies where God had promised to send a Messiah who would establish God's kingdom on earth. And they, and they knew the prophecies that this Messiah would restore the glory that the people of Israel had under the days of David and Solomon a thousand years before, but hadn't really experienced since. And after hanging around Jesus for three years before his death and resurrection and after seeing him and spending time with him for 40 days after his resurrection, they were starting to get the idea that Jesus was that Messiah that God had promised to send. And so it's a, it's a natural question for them to ask. Jesus, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time that you're going to restore political freedom to us? What these disciples didn't fully understand at this point, though, is that Jesus didn't come at this time to establish God's kingdom in a political sense. He came to establish God's kingdom in a spiritual sense. Jesus didn't come to free people from Roman oppression. He came to free people from their sin. Now, there is going to be a day when Jesus comes back and restores the kingdom to Israel. What exactly that looks like is something that people like to debate. We're not going to get into the debate right now because Jesus didn't get into the debate. 
in verse 7, Jesus tells his disciples, don't worry about the time that the Father is going to restore the kingdom to Israel. In verse 8, he tells the disciples what they should focus on instead. In verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples that they will be his witnesses in the city of Jerusalem, which is where they are now. And then they will move out and be his witnesses in the surrounding region of Judea and Samaria. And eventually they'll go out and be his witnesses to the end of the earth. Being his witnesses and expanding God's kingdom, that's what Jesus said his followers should be focused on. And then Jesus gives his disciples a great promise in verse 8. Jesus promises his disciples the power that they need to carry out this mission that he's just given them. And that power will come from the Holy Spirit. Now, church, one of the things you're going to learn about me is that I'm not much of a handyman. I own some tools, but I don't really use them all that often. And when I do, I sometimes do more harm than good. Now, one of the tools that I, that I own is a cordless drill. When we lived in Maryland, I don't think I used this cordless drill for the past five years. So when it came time to pack it up to move here, no surprise, the battery was dead. I think one of the smartest things I did before we left Maryland is I charged up the battery to my cordless drill. I had a feeling that when we moved into our new house, I was going to need to use that drill. And I have put that drill to good use over the last couple of weeks, hanging some racks in the garage and some other things around the house. And I managed to do it without causing too much damage. But you know, without a charged up battery, that drill wouldn't have any power. And if that drill didn't have any power, then I wouldn't have had the ability to make some holes in the wall to hang things up. That's really what power is. Power is ability. And just as the power in my drill battery gave me the ability to drill holes so that I could hang stuff up in the house, the power that the Holy Spirit supplies, this gives us the ability to be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. Now here's how that should affect the way that we live. When we feel inadequate to be witnesses for Jesus Christ, when we fear that we don't know enough, when we fear that we won't know what to say, when we fear that people are going to reject us, in these times, we've got to trust the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. We have to trust that God is with us and that he's empowering us. Our job is to be faithful to sharing the message about Jesus. That's our part. And when we do our part, we can trust that God will be faithful to do his part, which is to give us the power that we need. God promises to give us the power that we need. And it's the Holy Spirit that provides us with God's presence and God's power. That's why in order to be effective witnesses for Jesus, we have to rely on God's Holy Spirit. Now third, we also have to rely on God's holy people. To be effective witnesses for Jesus, we've got to rely on God's holy people. We see this in verse 8 as well. But the reference is a little more subtle than the previous point. When Jesus says that you will be my witnesses, the word you is plural. You really can't see that very clearly in English, but you can see it clearly in the Greek. You see, one of the challenges with the English language is that the word you could either be singular 
or it could be plural. The word you could refer to one person or it could refer to a group. So here in America, to compensate for this, uh, we've had to invent some different expressions to distinguish the singular you from the plural you. So for example, if Jesus were in the South and he were making this statement, he would have said, y'all will be my witnesses. Amen. <laughs> I'm not a Southerner, so I'm not sure I said that quite right, but you know, what, you know what I meant. Now, if Jesus were in New York and making this statement, he would say, you guys will be my witnesses. And if Jesus were from Pittsburgh, where I'm from, he would have said, yins will be my witnesses. The point I'm trying to make is that Jesus was speaking to these men as a group. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to see that this group will become the church. Jesus doesn't expect his followers to work alone. He expects them to work together. And to be effective witnesses for Jesus, we're going to have to work together. Last Saturday, I played pickleball for the first time in my life. They had pickleball back in Maryland, but uh, it was really only popular among the senior crowd. Young people, and I'd like to still think I qualify as one of those, uh, young people back in Maryland, they don't play pickleball. So I never played it there. But I can see it's a different story here in Indiana. right? People of all ages seem to play pickleball here. And so last Saturday, I had the opportunity to play some pickleball with a couple of guys here at the church. And as I played, one of the things that I picked up on very early is that if you and your partner want to be effective at pickleball, you have to work together. The more seasoned pickleball player has to come alongside the novice player and teach him what to do. That was me. I was the novice player. Some of the more seasoned players here had to come alongside and teach me what to do. And those more seasoned players, they also have to encourage the more novice players because, well, pickleball is not an easy game. And, you know, sometimes novice players like me, we, we hit shots that don't go where we intend them to go. I had some of those shots. And so the more seasoned players have to offer encouragement. They have to say, you know what, that's okay, you'll get it next time. And you know, church, as I thought about this, it struck me that if, if we want to be effective witnesses for Jesus, then we've got to do the same kind of things here. If we want to be effective witnesses for Jesus, we've got to work together. Those who are more seasoned followers of Christ and more seasoned witnesses for Jesus Christ, they've got to come alongside and teach those who are new to it. And they're going to need to encourage those who are new to witnessing for Jesus because things won't always go the way that we want them to go. One of the things that we're going to learn as we go through the book of Acts is that we live in a world that doesn't always want to hear the message that we have to share. Sometimes conversations aren't going to go the way that we hope that they will go. So here in this church, if we want to be effective witnesses for Jesus Christ, we're not only going to have to teach one another, but we're going to have to encourage one another. Church, God has given us each other. Let's not ignore this valuable resource that God has given us called a church family. To be effective witnesses for Jesus, we must rely on God's holy people to teach us and to encourage us.
And then last but not least, if we want to be effective witnesses for Jesus, we need to rely on God's holy promises. We have to rely on God's holy promises. We've already talked about God's promise to fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we'll have God's presence and God's power as we witness for Jesus. And we have to rely on that promise. But God makes another promise in this passage that we must rely on. And we see it in verses 9 through 11. In verse 9, Jesus ascends into heaven and he tells his disciples that they will receive power from the Holy Spirit and be his witnesses all around the world. Jesus was physically lifted up into the air and, and he was taken into heaven. And when that happened, the disciples did what you and I probably would have done. They just stood there and stared into the sky. I can imagine standing there speechless, wondering what in the world just happened to Jesus. Well, in verse 10, it says that as they were gazing into heaven, two men in white robes came and stood by them. And these men were angels. And in verse 11, the angels say to the disciples, guys, why are you just standing there looking into heaven? Jesus is going to come back. Just as you saw him go into heaven, he's going to come back. He went physically into heaven, he's going to physically come back. That's the promise. Jesus is going to return. Jesus is going to come back. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back, but we know that he is. Now, throughout his ministry, for the three years that Jesus walked around and told people about the kingdom of God, he told a lot of parables. And a large number of those parables were meant to teach us something about the certainty of his return and what we should be doing between the time that he ascends to heaven and the time that he returns from heaven. Luke recorded a lot of those, a lot of those parables in his gospel. And one of them's in chapter 19 of Luke's gospel. It's called the parable of the ten minas. In this parable, Jesus tells a, a story about a nobleman who's going to go away to a far country. And before this nobleman leaves, he calls 10 of his servants and he gives each one of them a mina, which was about three months of wages for a common laborer. And the nobleman told these servants to engage in business with those minas until he returned. And so then the nobleman takes off and after some times goes by, he, he returns from the far country. And when he returns, he calls his servants to give an account of what they did with their minas. Some servants come and say, and say Master, I, I used the mina that you gave me to make some more minas. And when they presented those extra minas to the Lord or to the nobleman, he praised them and he rewarded them and he called them good and faithful servants. But there was one servant who came to give an account and he said, Lord, I, I took the mina that you gave me and I, I wrapped it in a handkerchief and then I just kind of set it on a shelf. I didn't make any more minas with it. But here, here's the one mina back that you gave me. Now when this servant gives his mina back to, to the master, that nobleman had some harsh words for him. And he took that mina from the servant and he gave it to one of the others who had made extras with his. Now this parable teaches us two lessons. First, it teaches us that Jesus will return. Jesus is the nobleman in this in this parable. And Jesus' ascension into heaven, that's like the nobleman going away to the far country. 
But what we also learn from this parable is that Jesus expects his followers to do the work of expanding his kingdom between the time of his ascension to heaven and, his time, and the time of his return from heaven. That's what the minas represent. The nobleman gave his servants his money and he expected his servants to multiply that money while he was gone. Church, Jesus wants us to engage in kingdom expanding work before he returns. That's communicated pretty directly in the parable. Now it's not as direct, but it's implied in the angel's statement to the disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 11. When the angels ask the disciples why they're just standing, staring into heaven, what they're really saying is, guys, you better get to work. Now, of course, the disciples were going to have to wait for God to send the Holy Spirit before they engaged in that work. But, but once, that work, once that Holy Spirit came, those disciples were to, to get going right away being witnesses for Jesus. Church, one day Jesus is going to return. And just like those servants in the parable, we will have to give an account of what we did with what God gave us. Now, for a number of reasons, we might be tempted to put the resources that God gave us on the back burner, put them on the shelf, not engage in the kingdom expanding work that God has given us to do. When we're tempted to do that, to keep from giving in to that temptation, we must rely on God's holy promise that Jesus will return. Remembering that Jesus will return and that we'll have to give an account to him, this should motivate us to get busy doing the work that God has given us to do. Church, we can be effective witnesses for Jesus. We can be effective witnesses for Jesus because God has given us his holy resources. God's given us his holy word. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us his holy people, and he's given us his holy promises. One day we're going to stand before Jesus, and he's going to ask what we did with those resources. I don't know about you, but when I stand before Jesus, I want to hear him say that I was an effective witness for him. I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you want to be an effective witness for Jesus? When you stand before Jesus, do you want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant? Well, if you do, then you must rely on the resources that God has given you. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for pouring your great out, grace out on us and turning our hearts to you, that when we heard the message about Jesus Christ and about who he is and what he did when he came to save us from our sin, that you turned our hearts to you and that you gave us faith to believe and to become followers of Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the grace that you give us each and every day to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. We thank you for your holy word and how you reveal yourself to us in your word. We thank you that your, that your word is truth and that we can trust it. We thank you, God, for sending the Holy Spirit to come and to live within us so that we have your presence and your power wherever we go. And Lord, we thank you for your holy people. We thank you that you've called us together as the body of Christ to work together to pray together, to serve together, and to witness together. And God, we thank you for your promises. 
We thank you for the promise that Jesus is going to come back. And Lord, as we, as we think about that promise, I pray that it would move us to go out and tell others how they can become followers of Christ, how they can enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, it's our job to share the message. And we know that you'll be with us as we do that. And we're going to trust, Lord, that you'll do your part, which is to turn the hearts of people to you and to expand and grow your kingdom. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.